I've got the poster for the exhibition up here, so it is still on at the Jewish Museum until the 10th of August. And um, I was really excited when I was invited to give this lecture, partly because I've been thinking, sleeping, doing anything to do with the First World War continuously for so long. It's really nice. I, lo I just like talking about it because we've uncovered so many stories, but also because today's lecture gave me the opportunity to talk about how hard it was to put this exhibition together. So I'm not just going to talk about the Jewish experience, which hopefully the exhibition covers, but also how we decided to curate that and how we decided to put it together. Uh, as Daniel said, I joined the Jewish Military Museum, which, um, oh, so telling the story, yes. Um, the Jewish Military Museum, which you may or may not have heard of. It's in Hendon in North London. I joined in 2012. It... Um, came into being partly to counter the idea that Jews were disloyal, that Jews had never served Britain, that Jews had shirked, that they didn't want to fight. And it was put together by the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen and Women, which is a veterans organisation. Um, the first curator was Henry Morris, who was... He founded the museum, he started collecting things, bringing them together to tell this story of Jewish service in the British Armed Forces. And he was also one of the ones who was standing on a box in High Park Corner shouting against the fascists. So you can see he had a very specific agenda when it came to putting this museum together. And it was put together from a very military perspective. Um, since I joined, I've been immersed in this military world to a certain extent, also a Jewish world, and learning many, many different things from many angles. But um, it was really exciting to be able to work with the Jewish Museum, as I was actually just mentioning before I started, because it meant that we could explore a bit more widely than just telling the Jewish story of service. We could also explore the motivations behind that, what it actually meant to be Jewish and serve, and that kind of thing, which is really what the exhibition looks at. Um, I should just say AJEX, the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen and Women, actually came about because of the First World War. It was founded in 1930, but it was kind of rumbling along in the 20s, to look after veterans from the First World War, to remember Jews who died in the First World War, and nowadays also education, which is where the museum comes in. And we are merging with the Jewish Museum. If you've ever been to our museum, you'll know it's slightly smaller than this room, in an impregnable building. You can't get in very easily. And so it's rather challenging as a museum. And we're really excited to be able to move to the Jewish Museum and bring our stories to a wider audience and also to a non-Jewish audience because most of our visitors are Jewish. And it's nice to be able to tell stories to both within and without the community. So it's very exciting. But anyway, I'm going to start talking about World War I now. Um, so... The outbreak of World War I really exposed many, many divisions and fractures within the British Jewish community. It was kind of under question whether you could call it a community. On the outbreak of war, the Jewish Chronicle, who'd before the war, like literally a few days before, been very reluctant to subscribe to the idea of war, uh, came forth with a slogan, England has been all she could be to Jews, Jews will be all they can be to England. And this is actually the Jewish Chronicle office with the slogan on the front, which I love this picture. Um, uh, and 
The focus was on fulfilling the compact of emancipation. Jews had been free. Jews had been allowed to live in Britain freely, and now they owed it to Britain to serve. And many of the more long-term settled community really believed this. They wanted to prove their loyalty, and proving their loyalty they could do by serving. This is a, a Jewish Chronicle cover as well, which, again, it says, Jews, fall in, serve with your fellow Jews, enlist at once. And again, the slogan, England has been all she could be to Jews. Jews will be all they can be to England. I also have, I don't have a picture of it, I'm afraid, a Yiddish poster of, from 1916, which I'm going to read you because it really gets the line of rhetoric that was being used to encourage Jews to join up. In England, there are thousands of Jews who should be grateful to it for their freedom and justice, to this country that protects them. They have come here from many lands, and in general, they have been accepted here, free from racial prejudice and racial hatred. Any appeal to passions will not be appropriate, but an appeal to honour and gratitude will look quite different. In the current great crisis, the country is giving Jews their rightful place and the opportunity to help the country. So... The, the whole kind of push was to encourage Jews to sign up. And of the settled community, many people did sign up. By December 1914, about 4,000 Jewish men had signed up, a lot of them from the settled community. And it included people like Frank de Pass, who was the first ever Jewish winner of the Victoria Cross. I'm going to go on a military bit now. So the Victoria Cross is the highest award for bravery in the British Armed Forces. And this is Frank de Pass. He was basically part of the Jewish elite. His family was very wealthy. He was born in Chelsea, Kensington and Chelsea. He, his father was a trader with the East End India Company. And he actually served in the cavalry, the 34th Pune Horse Regiment, a cavalry unit in British India. Jews had been allowed in the armed forces and allowed to practice as Jews in the armed forces since the 1880s. But it was still quite hard to get a commission. He actually became a lieutenant just before he went to India, but a lot of Jewish men went out to India in order to be able to come, become an officer. He came back in September 20, uh, 1914 with his um, garrison, with his battalion, sorry, and in November 1914 he was killed in the act of doing the act of bravery which got in the Victoria Cross. And this is from the uh, London Gazette, which has all of the different citations for Victoria Crosses. So it says, For conspicuous bravery near Festabair on the 24th of November, in entering a German sap and destroying a traverse in the face of the enemy's bombs, and for subsequently rescuing, under heavy fire, a wounded man who was lying exposed in the open. Lieutenant de Pass lost his life on this day in a second attempt to capture the aforementioned sap which had been reoccupied by the enemy. So there's all these stories of brave, daring do, people fighting very bravely, very um, consistently to prove their loyalty to Britain. In contrast, the immigrant community was much more ambivalent about the war. So these are mainly Russian immigrants and people from Eastern Europe who come over since the 1880s, huge population growth. As you probably know, there's some antagonism between the two communities, um, the uh, settled community had become very anglicised. Their synagogues, as a good example, were very church-like, quiet, calm places. And in contrast, the immigrant synagogues were much more crowded, loud, everyone talking at once. I mean, there was just significant differences between the two groups. And 
They also didn't necessarily want to serve on the same side as Russia, which is a country they'd escaped persecution in. So you can understand that. And having been Russians, they were very, very good at avoiding the draft. Because in Russia, one of the reasons many people left was the horrendous conditions in the Russian army where they were forced to serve. So they really were very good at um, shirking, if I can say that. Um, the British government uh, really clamped down on foreigners at the beginning of the war. Anyone who's from Germany, anyone from Austria-Hungary, were de designated enemy aliens and interned um, from the beginning of the war. Um, Non-naturalised Jews were not allowed to serve. They weren't taken into the army to begin with and were seen all over the place on the streets of Whitechapel, these young men who weren't serving. And this became a real problem, which led to riots in Bethnal Green and Leeds because... Jews were seen as not serving. There's a brilliant quote in the Daily Mail, which I don't have here, but talking about Jews living off the fat of the land with a woman on each arm. So the Daily Mail hasn't changed very much, maybe. But um, the Daily Mail actually had some very nice articles about brave Jewish fighters as well. So, um, and we feature both in the exhibition because I wanted to have that balance. Um, but many immigrant Jews did avoid service. Some served, but many avoided it. Disappearing was the kind of favourite way to do it, just not being around, but also some went to Ireland. Um, I did hear an oral history about a Russian Jewish immigrant who was found a man who would punch him in the head so he could get partial deafness and then be exempted. He, the man who was going to punch him couldn't promise he wouldn't be permanently deaf, and so therefore he decided against it and he signed up. But he thought because he was morbidly obese, he wouldn't be conscripted, and he was, so he was disappointed in that. Um, uh, and you also have stories like Isaac Rosenberg, who, again, was uh, of immigrant parentage and actually did sign up, but mainly for money rather than for any loyalty to Britain in order to keep his mother because he didn't feel he could do anything else. There were at least 140 conscientious objectors that were Jewish and I'm working on a little project to investigate them in more depth which is really interesting, mostly on socialist and political grounds but a very few on religious grounds and if you were a conscientious objector on religious grounds you're much more likely to get a proper exemption. If you just uh, were a pacifist for example it was much much harder and what would happen is they'd... Um, be sent out to war as, for example, an ambulance bearer. And if they really didn't believe in the war, they would then refuse orders, get court-martialed, get sent to prison, serve six months, then get sent back to France again and go through the same rigmarole. And it was just, it was really diabolical. The British Army was spending so much resource on sending these men in this circle. And later on in the war, they just imprisoned them. But then they started, um, the uh, conditions under which they were kept were so horrific, they weren't allowed to talk to each other, for example, at all no talking, in um, Pentonville prison. And so they, that's when they started hunger strikes and many of them were force-fed tens and tens of times. So, but anyway, I'm not going to be talking about that, but it's really interesting. Um, this is a picture of Jewish conscientious objectors at Dartmoor Prison in October 1917. And I know the man on the back row, second from the left, is called Morris Miller, and we know that he definitely went through the cycle of court-martial and imprisonment at least twice. And we're, we're trying to kind of find out who all the other ones are. We've got a few more names, but um, it's quite an interesting thing to find that out. Um, there is, a, obviously, we show the Ribeiro petition, which is a petition from lots of people uh, of the day protesting against these people not being able to get proper exemption. 
And that isn't to say that all immigrants didn't want to serve. This is Heimer Rutstein. This is another story that we tell from the military museum. He very much wanted to serve. He wanted to become British. He was sick of Russia, having left it through persecution, and he thought the best way out was to become British. And so he signed up uh, quite early on in the war. He took his tefillin to the trenches, and we actually have them, which is interesting that it shows that he was actively practicing as a Jewish person in the trenches. And after the war, at least 3,000 Russian immigrants got free British citizenship as a result of their service. They still had to jump through all the other hoops, but they didn't have to pay the huge amount of money which it cost. Um, oops, that's where I go. Um, I'll just mention quickly, it's also true that immigrant Jews, by both the settled community and the wider community weren't seen as fighters, really, and that was another problem. Uh, eugenics was quite popular back then among everyone, basically, and medical dis discourse basically said that immigrant Jews weren't fit for fighting. And this was proved true in some cases. There were a lot of um, uh, <laughs> men who, whose health improved significantly from serving in the army because they had better diets, better space, better exercise, and also they were able to integrate more, they were able to speak English and became much healthier integrated individuals as a result of the war, which is a kind of interesting side effect. Um, but the Jewish Chronicle on the 6th of October 1916 says, are we going to press these gaunt bearded brothers into khaki? What can be the military value of these men? Observe them during the high festivals and ask yourself if they are the material whence fighting men are fashioned. The very idea is absurd. So it really reminds you that within the community as well, there was no belief that these men could be fighters. Now, I, at the beginning of this, uncovering all these different stories of fractures within the community and disagreements, I kind of assumed that this was known by everyone, that this was a story which was basically common knowledge, and this is how everyone understood the Jewish community in 1914. I was really surprised when I started talking to various volunteers of different organisations and different Jewish groups that many people uh, found it very uncomfortable, this idea that the Jewish community was not one coherent body. In fact, I think partly due to the legacy of the fascists and the idea that Jews hadn't fought, people really didn't want to confront the idea that while some Jews absolutely had served bravely, some Jews had definitely avoided service. And um, it was also difficult for me, because I'm not Jewish, and I was saying to many of these people, I'm going to tell this story of your community about your Jewish people not fighting. And it was there was tension in the air, you can imagine. But I decided that it was an opportunity to tell this story and to try and open up the discourse to tell the story of all these different facets rather than just focus on the glorious story of a Jewish war. So that's the way I went. Um, um, 19, post-1918, there was a real problem for the Jewish community. During the war, patriotism had been whipped into a frenzy in Britain. Um, as you probably know, um, uh, there was extreme rhetoric against the Germans for doing horrific things, um, a lot of which had a crusader-like kind of push to it. It was very Christian, um, uh, Jewish chaplain, um, sorry, general chaplains wanted all men to go and serve in the um, armed forces in order to, uh, sorry, chaplains wanted all men to go to church together, to be whipped into this Christian crusade against the Germans. 
which was obviously problematic for Jewish soldiers. And um, uh, the 19, in 1922, the British Jewry Book of Honour was published. And I see this as part of the same continuum. It was published partly to remember all the Jews who died. 2,500 or more Jews died for Britain during the First World War but also to prove Jewish service, because part of the side effect of this crusader push was um, ultimately increased xenophobia, increased anti-Semitism, and um, lots of German shops, windows were smashed, for example. So you definitely had um, a real, really strong reaction within the British community. And I think for Jews, after the war was actually harder than before the war in terms of crystallised anti-Semitism, which is interesting. And I think this is why the story of Jews not fighting has been so contentious, as you can imagine. It does make sense. Um, but it is being uncovered now. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of um, historians since the 70s have actually looked at this story, but it seems that not everyone knows about it. Um, so I wanted to reflect the variety of experience, I've already said that, and the community divides, and what underlay the choices made by Jewish men and women. And to do that, I decided the easiest way, and the way which was kind of led by our collection, was to look at the different stories of different people. And I've already mentioned some of them. Um, uh, the story of the First World War is massive, and so when we started then looking at who we were going to include, how we were going to capture these stories, I looked to our collection, and I decided that actually we wanted to escape hierarchies. We wanted to escape the idea of just telling the people who were in charge. So I'm afraid General Monash, who is often seen as one of the greatest Je uh, Jewish commanders of the British Armed Forces, but who served uh, as a commander in the Australian army, we don't have any objects from him. His story is fascinating, but well known. And what it didn't quite add up in this story that we wanted to tell of what the war meant to individual Jews and individual normal Jews, if I can say that. Um, uh, and I did have pressure from marketing departments and others who wanted me to include big stories which would kind of, you know, fire people up. So Jack Cohen, for example, who founded Tesco's, used his DMOB money to do his first, make his first market stall. That's a really interesting story. But when trying to uncover what he actually did during the war, I found about two sentences. We had no objects whatsoever. We had a photograph, and I thought... We could put him in, but essentially we're shoehorning a story in to try and hook people in, when actually the stories themselves that we have in detail of people are so much more interesting. So, again, that's the decision I went with. Um, uh, one of the challenges for us is obviously reflected in our collection. There is, there is always significant biases in the way that museums collect and we, the way museums have collected. You can't go into a museum collection now and just be have everything you want, exactly what you would have collected 50 years ago. I'm working with a military collection as well, which was largely put together by veterans and military people. They think medals are amazing. Now, I would say medals are great, but 
just a medal on its own doesn't tell the story. You need the letters that they wrote. You need some other documentation. I mean, a medal doesn't tell you that uh, Isaac Rosenberg was only five foot one and had to join a Bantam regiment. We know that from other history, but Bantam means for small men. He wanted to join the uh, RAMC uh, medical corps so he wouldn't be on the front line, but he was too short, so he had to join the Bantams. Um, but you need all this extra information. And if people have just collected the medals, that is a real challenge. So, um, uh, yes, we had to work with that. Um, with my assistant curator, Sarah Fairhurst, who I should mention, because she's done so much of the work for this, um, we worked with the Jewish Museum London and also the Manchester Jewish Museum to try and find these stories where you could really get some meat on it. You could really unpick someone's experience. And... Um, the first, uh, yeah, and so, so that was basically what we did. We went back to the objects, we went back to the collections and try and find out what we got. We have an amazing chaplaincy collection as well, looking at the Jewish chaplaincy, so that's very good. And we have some really amazing individual stories, like Hyman Rutstein, who I just showed you. We also have his uh, Silver War badge, because he was injured during the war. And you've probably heard of the white feather women who used to give out white feathers. A lot of them were very anti-Semitic as well. We've got an amazing card on display in the exhibition, of, uh, uh, which was sent anonymously with anti-German slurs all over the card. And obviously the person who wrote it after he was about to send it after he designed it all decided it wasn't quite offensive enough and added some extra anti-German slurs around the edges it's really remarkable but the silver war badge was in order that he would be seen as an injured veteran so he wouldn't get attacked um, by the white feather women um, uh, so we had these amazing stories and we wanted to tell them but capturing people's voices when you don't have their letters is really difficult. Authenticity is a big question in museums because it's so easy to make replicas of things and it's so easy for me to take someone's medals and then weave a story around them to tell, make a point that I really want to do. And I'm not saying museums do that, but you so easily could. You just pick out what you need and then you can tell anything you want. Um, so we went to the written accounts, and this is Florence Oppenheimer, who's been looking at you for some time now. She was born in North London, and she was part of a family of eight. She left school when she was 17 to help her mother, uh, because her father didn't approve of women nursing men. She wasn't allowed to become a nurse, which she really wanted to do, until she was 29. She trained from 1911 onwards at the Royal Sussex County Hospital in Brighton, and she was taking her final exams when World War I broke out. She signed up straight away, and she was put on a military hospital ship. She served on hospital ships all around the Mediterranean, and uh, in the Gallipoli campaign uh, in Egypt and in Palestine, and she was mentioned in dispatches, which means that she did something honourable and brave, but not quite as good as a military cross or a Victoria cross. But also, she was a nurse, so she probably wouldn't have got those anyway. Um, uh, now, we have her diary. That is what's amazing about this. Uh, and this is a quote from her. Uh, and I'm going to read out some other quotes. Her diary is really remarkable. It talks about her experience of war. It talks about the fact that um, they went out on this boat. And she describes it in all such detail. She talks about how boring it was. She says, um, uh, this was on the July the 26th, 1915. It is a good thing that this voyage isn't going to last much longer. The very atmosphere makes people very sentimental. 
What with moonlit nights and nothing to occupy one, even staid and steady men seemed to go a little bit mad. After chatting for a couple of days to an apparently quite serious doctor, he was foolish enough to propose to me this afternoon. I wanted to laugh at him, however he seemed really in earnest, so I thought it, the best way out of it was to tell him my religion. In any case, that hurt his feelings the least. Um, that was on the 26th of July, and she was in the Gallipoli campaign. So on the August the 8th, not long afterwards, 1915, the Gallipoli campaign had started and the soldiers were starting to come off the battlefield. And she writes, on the ship, we didn't stop for our boxes to get our aprons out, but pinned towels over our alpaca dresses and soon had our hands full. I got landed right in the very depths of the boat, a dreadful hole with hardly any air. This was supposed to be for minor cases, but lots of serious ones got sent down as well. When I had got my 200 men fairly well settled in bed, I wandered upstairs, but stretcher cases were pouring in, so I stayed another, in another ward for a while and got some of them comfortable. It was agony to get these poor fellows into the bunks. There were six in a row and two rows deep. If I wanted to do anything for the man in the top row in number two bed, I had to balance myself on the lower bunks and reach over the man in the top one. I got about 10 stretcher cases in, then matron came and fetched me away to lie down for a couple of hours. Then up again to here we were going to take on another 800 stretcher cases, and by breakfast time we had taken 1,980 cases on board, and there were only 10 nurses looking after these men. At last I realised what war really meant, all these cases straight from the battlefield and other ships all around us also taking the poor fellows on as fast as ever they could. All the decks, every hole and corner of the place was utilised. And that kind of voice is just so powerful. She also talks at a later date when they'd run out of everything, they had nothing, of going to get her tiny bar of carbolic soap and washing the faces of the men who'd been brought in because that was all she could do for them but at least it gave them something. She did seem to really enjoy serving, though, because she came back to Britain. She was in a normal hospital, and she signed up to go out again, which is why she was in Egypt and then later Palestine. And after five years of it, she decided she'd had enough, and she left uh, Egypt, no, Palestine in 1919. And the other interesting thing about Florence is that she married Leopold Greenberg, who was editor of the Jewish Chronicle, and wrote the book, Jewish Cookery Book, which most... Um, Jewish women of a certain age have learned how to cook from. So, I mean, she really was a remarkable woman, um, but not very religious. The only other mention of her religion in the whole of the diary is she says, I thought I might go to synagogue, and then that's it. So, um, I'm not sure if she ever went. Now, the other person who we have an awfully lot, an awful lot to say about is Marcus Siegel. Marcus Siegel, um, he is, was also from North London. He was originally from Newcastle and he enlisted with the London Regiment when he was 17. Uh, he became a temporary second lieutenant in 1915 and he was in the trenches. And he is remarkable because unlike many of the soldiers who write about fags all the time and nothing else and how they miss their darling and then, then that's the whole letter, he's incredibly articulate, incredibly um, uh, in touch with his emotions. He can really connect, which is lovely. He says um, things like, I'm really lucky to have such dear parents to me. Please, God, may it be my luck to come and repay you one day for all your kindness to me. He 
was quite from quite a religious family, and that really shows in his letter to his grandparents, who were obviously more religious, and he was showing that he was still keeping faith while in the trenches. He writes, Dear Grandma and Granda, just a few lines to let you know I'm keeping quite well and trust you are the same. I have been very close to the firing line these last few weeks, so practically all I know anything about is shells. I've got my tzitzits attached to my body belt, and all it needs is a good wash. I will return the seder at the first opportunity. I had my last dugout full of leaves on top in honour of sukkah, but I dare not put any fruit hanging, as fruit would not hang very long here. I expect to be going over the top in a day or so, and with God's wish, I will be quite all right. Life out here makes us one very religious, and it makes one think what the Almighty can do. I have just opened a chicken from Barnet, and the smell was so chronic all the guns stopped firing. We get, we get issued with biscuits just like matzah, and the cook seemed to make some sort of a matzah-like ball out of it. Well, my dear grandparents, I must conclude, with the very best love to you all, I remain your ever-loving son, Marcus. And I think he is really lovely because he writes like that, which is really, really beautiful. But also the fact that he was practising his faith quite actively in the trenches is quite interesting. He buried a lot of um, Jewish men. Um, I'll read one more bit from him, which kind of emphasises what the war was actually like. Have just got out of the trenches since the big attack on the 3rd of April, having had nine days the worst life in my life in the trenches. I had one biscuit and one cup of water for three days, having been cut off in a wood, and I dare not breathe for the danger of being sniped. I managed to crawl in on the 6th of April, absolutely beat to the world. Oh my God, how I thought of the old dear home, and was worrying, knowing how anxious you would be. The trench I finally got in had wells underneath, and I have been up to my neck in mud till this morning. There were only three officers of my battalion got out alive, and practically every man was killed or wounded. We are still in the line, but thank God a long way off, and expect to go out on a decent rest by the 15th of this month. It was absolutely impossible to get any, uh, any communication through before today, and I have never been more grateful to the Almighty than to be able to do so today. I had my equipment and the Zeiss glasses hit in several places and was unconscious for 24 hours, but managed to pull myself together. Things I have seen do not stand thinking about, so I will shut up. Heaps and heaps of love. God bless you all, your loving son, Marcus. Not got gramophone yet. Please, the garden is progressing, which is a kind of interesting note. Of um, He really wanted a gramophone in the trenches, and nearly all of his letters mention the fact he's ordered a gramophone and he can't get one, and he's really jealous of anyone who has one. And sadly, he was killed in 1917, aged 20, um, and he never got his gramophone either, so um, it's very sad. So by using voices like this, we could really kind of explore what it meant to be in the trenches and what it meant to be Jewish in the trenches as well and I think it really gave something we're really lucky to actually got money to digitize the whole of his letters he's wrote we've got over 150 of his letters and also the whole of Florence's diary so you can actually look at them in the exhibition and they're going to go online so everyone can read them because they are wonderful um, we also borrowed oral histories um, from the Imperial War Museum which has got an amazing collection of oral histories and that was again another way of bringing people's voices in and we have Rose Kerrigan who lost her faith because of the war aged 14 and then lost her job for defending 
conscientious objectors and saying how brave they were. So she is a very interesting one. We've got Paul Kane, who joined the German army to do his duty to his country, but couldn't get promotion because of his faith and also lost an awful lot of weight while he was serving because he only got served watered-down rice with a sausage in it, which he didn't like at all. Um, and we've got Haim Gilbert, who was a child during the war, and he talks amazing stories about um, seeing, uh, going to see a Zeppelin bombing and seeing all the bits of German soldiers as a, um, as a Zeppelin which had come down uh, and just having them all on a kind of show in a museum to see all these fragments, which is quite horrible. He, doesn't, he says in the thing he doesn't know why his parents took him there, but he also remembers a Dachshund being kicked to death because it was a German dog, which really reflects, again, the anti-German feeling. Now, I'm going to talk... I think I'm running out of time. What <laughs> um, I'm going to talk brief, briefly on faith as well, because I have already mentioned it quite a lot. But one of the things I really wanted to do was try and capture what it meant to be Jewish and what challenges there were for faith. Now, in the First World War... Right at the beginning, there were no Jewish chaplains on the front line. They're all in Britain. They weren't serving the troops. Most battalions would have a Christian chaplain attached to give spiritual welfare to the troops, to lead services, but not the Jewish soldiers. And um, this was a real problem, as you can imagine. Most Jewish soldiers were quite isolated. One of the ideas at the beginning of the war was it would help, from the settled community, was it would help integration if these Jewish soldiers were spread out, one in each battalion. Although sometimes they served together. The Cardiff Pals, there's a great story of some, um, some of them ganging up together to give their bacon back um, as a kind of collective move. But you can imagine, if you're on your own, you're very unlikely to be able to go and give your bacon back. Um, but... This is the Reverend Michael Adler, um, and he was senior chaplain to the forces, and he was a really remarkable man. In 1915, he did a report showing the British government that there needed to be Jewish chaplains on the front line. And by the end of the war, there were 14 of them, which still wasn't very many, but each with a car whizzing up and down the front line. And they'd send telegraphs in, uh, telegrams in advance of their movement so then they could bring people together. And in 1916, for Yom Kippur, he had 200 men. That's the kind of level that he managed to get together to, um, uh, to be with for services and on high holy days. Um, it was better in the German army... Actually, they were far more organised and far better at looking after their Jewish troops. There were far more Jewish chaplains right from the beginning. And 1916 Rosh Hashanah in Brussels, 1,600 German men actually attended. Um, so you can really see that differential. It's really interesting how much more effective the Germans were at looking after their Jewish troops in some ways. Although, obviously, from 1917, when there was the census trying to show that all German Jewish soldiers were shirkers and not serving on the front line, that kind of split began to show. Um, addressing faith was quite a difficult one. Many of my volunteers are quite religious at the Jewish Military Museum, and they, they often have told me that they feel it's difficult being a Jewish person with significant faith going to somewhere like the Jewish Museum, which maybe explores cultural identity as much as it does faith identity. And I'm not saying that one should be above the other, but it was another discussion that we had. How can we include the idea of having faith and different levels of faith? And again, I just 
looked at the different experiences of people and having people like Marcus, who was obviously quite religious, but we had far more religious people as well in the exhibition. Actually, there's an oral history with a, an Orthodox Jew who bemoaned the fact he never got kosher food for the whole of the war because British Jews didn't get kosher food at all. Um, but I, I think it is an interesting question, but hopefully we managed to address it somewhat. Um, uh, now, the Judeans, they're another really... Um, oh, hopefully... This is on my laptop, so um, I don't know if you'll be able to hear it. It's a bit quiet, but... Can you hear it? Just play a bit. I think it's a bit too quiet, really. Stop it. Um, but you hear it in all its glorious noise if you go to the exhibition. I'm sorry, I couldn't make it louder. Um, this is the hymn of the Jewish Legion. And one of the things that we wanted to do in the exhibition as well was give the atmosphere, what you felt you were kind of walking into. So we have out loud recordings. We have Isaac Rosenberg's poems at the beginning, talking about the beginning of the war. Then as you go in, we actually have a prayer, which was a memorial prayer to all of the dead. And then we have the hymn of the Jewish Legion, which is in Yiddish, Hebrew, and English. Uh, the Yiddish version is by far the best. I don't know why. It's far more um, fiery. Um, and we actually borrowed the copy from the British Library and got the London Male Choir to sing it for us, which was amazing. It was really... I don't know if anyone had heard it for years. It, it's a bit trite, but it's rather a nice hymn anyway. It's, uh, and I, I tried to G them up and get the martial spirit going. Now, um, the Jewish Legion is really interesting because when I started at the Jewish Military Museum, it's one of those stories that I was told over and over again. There was this Jewish fighting force, the first one since the Maccabees. This is an amazing story, and it is an amazing story. The um, 38th Battalion... So it came about because of intense lobbying from Zionists who wanted a Jewish fighting force uh, to fight against the Ottoman Empire in Palestine also because the British government were absolutely desperate for men. And by this point, anyone who could lobby and convince them that lots of people would join up were also going to be successful, maybe. That's my take on it. Lots of other people have lots of different opinions how it came about. But um, the 38th Battalion was raised in the East End of London. This is the marching through the East End of London, where they finished with a kosher banquet with the local mayor and then got on the train to war. And they served in Palestine, uh, fighting against the Ottoman Empire. Over 80% of them got malaria. Um, they didn't have a great time, but they fought. And it's, I think, seen as very important for many people that there was this body of men fighting as Jews. One of the ideas was to get Russian immigrants to fight, to join up, so they could fight together, so that they wouldn't be isolated, not be able to um, worship or be Jewish. And it kind of worked a bit, but it wasn't quite as successful as they'd hoped. This is their cat badge, which was actually only introduced in 1919, so after the war. But you can see it's in the shape of a menorah with Kadima written on it, meaning forward. So it's all very... And they had a Star of David shoulder flush as well, which, to begin with, I think were homemade, and then later on they actually printed one. So it's an interesting story. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was quite remarkable that they existed. And they were obviously preceded by the Zion Mule Corps, who was the first Jewish force um, who were a Labour battalion in 
Gallipoli, which I missed out before. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about, just briefly, the design, because creating an exhibition isn't just about choosing the stories, it's also about creating an experience. And the hymn and the sound and all of that was really important. But we were very lucky to work with Arno Deschel, who is our designer, and he is really remarkable. He um, did the Amy Winehouse exhibition as well at the Jewish Museum, if any of you saw that, I'm not sure. But you, our exhibition, this exhibition, is so different. It just shows his capacity. And one of the real challenges when we um, were doing this exhibition is how on earth do we tell the story of the First World War? It is vast. We want to tell the Jewish story of the First World War, but that nevertheless needs to be seated within the wider story of the war because things like um, the Alien Registrations Act in 1905, that's a British thing, but really impacted on the Jewish community. We needed to seat it within that. And um, Arno came up with a plan to have a central space. You can see this, the bottom right-hand corner is actually the carpet in the exhibition, which you can't see as that now because it's full of stuff, but... I haven't showed, put, put any pictures of the exhibition itself in, so you'll have to go and see it. Um, but, um, uh, but this is the jagged carpet, and the idea is this is the story of the First World War in the central space, and the Jewish story is around the edges. So you move in and out, and if you see the top diagram, it's quite complicated, but the idea is you move through the Jewish experience of community into the main story of the war, and then back into various aspects of the Jewish experience of the war while being led through the timeline. And the timeline actually goes, um, you can see on the jagged areas, there's a timeline for each year of the war throughout. And we've used newspaper quotes, I already mentioned some of them, to try and tell a Jewish story as well as the general story. Um, I couldn't see this. When he first presented this plan, I couldn't see how it was going to work because we have over 150 objects in the exhibition which, for the tiny space which we have, which is probably about the same as this room, actually, maybe a little bit narrower and longer, um, is really small. Like, to have that many things in is really a real challenge. But he, we've managed to make it not completely overwhelming. Oh, these are some of the timelines you can see. So you can see 1914, 1918, to try and draw the Jewish story and the world story together. And also to allow the voices to speak. Because one of the problems sometimes with oral histories and personal stories is they can be pushed to the edges, they can be ignored, they can just be bolt-on, so you just have some headphones around the place to say that you're doing your job in those terms. But hopefully this allowed us to bring them in. Um, and so this is just some pictures of when we were constructing it, actually. So you can see the timelines at the top. And this is the Friends Preview Day, which is of the exhibition, but there's so many people in the way, you can't see what's going on. And actually, that was a real problem on the preview day because they couldn't tell where anything was because there were so many people in. But it was really nice to see it busy. Um, now, the only thing I haven't talked... Well, I've talked about... Not talked about quite a lot of things, but one of the things I haven't talked about, finally, is the question mark. And the question mark was a very conscious decision. Part of it was, as you can imagine, because of this story of many Jews serving for different motivations or not serving, or having different experiences of war. But part of it was also because we wanted to tell the wider Jewish story, the Jewish story of Jews serving um, for all countries, for Germany, for Austro-Hungary, for France, for Russia. Uh, I think how many 
The Jewish population of Russia, which was obviously very large at that point, was 9 million in 1914, and 600,000 Jewish men served. I mean, these figures are really astonishing, actually. And we have a Pickelhauber, which is a spiked German helmet, which says Mit Gott für König und Vaterland on it, which is basically for king and country again. So the story is these men were all fighting many of them for reasons of loyalty, or at least just because they felt that duty to their country. And we wanted to reflect that actually Jews weren't just serving Britain, and it isn't a story of a story that we should be celebrating these glorious Jewish men. I think we should be understanding the complexity of the choices Jewish people made in order to decide to serve Britain or serve their other countries. And that's the end. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your extremely fascinating lecture, <laughs> extremely, on an extremely complicated and very mutilated topic. And I also have a lot of questions. Yes, please. Good one. Uh, you mentioned the, the 1916 questionnaire. Mm. You referred to this time to the German. Yes. Yes, so. No, there wasn't. I, I mean, I would say that um, anti Semitism was prevalent in the British Armed Forces, but it was in pockets. That's one of the really interesting thing, I, things, I think, actually. Um, before the war and during the war, often people would encounter anti Semitism, but they would also encounter people who were very sympathetic to Jewish people and kind of fought against the anti Semitism. <laughs> but unfortunately, because of the increased xenophobia and push to patriotism, I think a lot of that got crystallised, and after the war, it was more evident. That's what I, I feel, anyway, yeah. Uh, thanks for a very exciting talk. I just, I'm not sure if you can answer this, but maybe somebody else can. Mm -hmm. um, Britain didn't have general conscription until the beginning of 1916, as mm -hmm. opposed to the other countries yeah. in the war. So I wonder if there is information in terms of percentages of volunteers in the Jewish community as opposed to the non-Jewish community and was there a great difference in volunteering? There, there, is, there is data on that. Um, uh, there wasn't that much difference. Um, one of the stories that's often told is that a greater proportion of the Jewish community served Britain as opposed to the wider community. I don't normally say that because actually pre-conscription, I can't remember the exact figures, but I think it was about 11.9% of the Jewish community had um, signed up, whereas it was about 12% of the population in general. Post-conscription, it was about 13.1% of the Jewish community had signed up, it was about 13% of the population in general. So I think that partly reflects the fact that migrants and immigrants in general are going to be biased towards young men. So inevitably, there's going to be a higher proportion once conscription comes in, despite the people avoiding service actually serving. So I think roughly the same is really the, the correct answer. Yes. Um, is there anything in the exhibition about um, immigrant Jews who went back to fight in Russia? A small amount, um, yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the choices given at the beginning of the war, absolutely, um, that you could be deported 
or sign up. Oh, I mean, that was later in the war where you could be deported or sign up. But a lot of... Um, my understanding is a lot of Russian Jews at the beginning of the war were actually students because they couldn't study in Russia. So they came here to study and actually left at the beginning of the war to go and fight for Russia, which is interesting, and I want to know more about it, but I haven't, um, I haven't read enough on that yet, I'm afraid. But if anyone else knows anything more, then it would be interesting. I knew, mm -hmm. said when he was about five years old, towards the end of the war, he came home from school one day, there was a strange man in the kitchen. <laughs> And his father said, this is your father. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a very long war. I think, I mean, we're going to see that with the commemorations lasting until 2018. So we might all know far too much about the war by the end of the years. But it was a very long war. I think it's easy to forget how long that is. <laughs> you mentioned one German Jew who went back to Germany. Mm. Do you have any other examples like that of, of German Jews returning to Germany? Oh, sorry, he wasn't. He didn't return to Germany. He was already in Germany. Um, I don't have any. No, most. I don't have any any information about German Jews who returned to Germany. Um, part of one of the things that we found very challenging actually was um, telling the story of German Jews because you can imagine our collection isn't brilliant. So our collection is very much skewed to people whose families came over on the kinder transport or as refugees in the 30s and then their sons signed up to fight for the British and so then we get the sons medals from the Second World War and sometimes their father's Iron Cross from the First World War. It's again one of those strange things of collection as a military museum. Um, we did work with the Wiener Library as well um, to look at their collections but they mainly have a document, uh, an art document archive. So again, it's quite hard to just show documents. We've got an awful lot of documents in this exhibition because that's really one of the things we have in a lot, in great numbers. But one, when you're a, an exhibition visitor, you don't really just want to see one tea-coloured document after another because it can get, and it's quite hard to read as well. So it can get quite tiring, I think. So hopefully we've got a nice mix. But yeah, um, the Picklehaber. Um, belonged to a man called Julius Weinberg and his son actually, he actually survived Buchenwald and his son came to Britain in the Kindertransport and I met his son, his son's in his early 90s, an absolutely lovely man um, with a very strong German accent and it was wonderful to talk to him, it really was. How many of the Jewish immigrants were actually uh, interned at the beginning of the war with the, uh, the other uh, sort of, how much were they treated as Germans being in, if they came from Germany or uh, Eastern? It all depended on naturalisation. So if you were a naturalised British citizen, then you're fine. And if you weren't, then you were interned. 27,000 men were interned at the Nokaloo uh, prisoner of war camp on the Isle of Man, uh, which is a huge number. I don't know what proportion of them were Jewish. I was trying to find out, but there's, the information is quite scarce. I probably need to look harder, but um, it's quite difficult. We have some um, uh, objects which were carved by Tony Kushner's grandfather's sister, or uh, brother, I think, who was interned. <laughs> but we don't know his name, but they're on display in the exhibition. And when he came to see it, he was like, oh, they, they were my family's object. He was quite surprised. But, um, yeah, it's really... We don't know enough about internment. It's one of the other subjects that once this exhibition is done, then I want to, like, 
go off and do much more detailed research into little bits. So, yeah. I would like to come in the question. Mm. Um, I have a lot of minorities serving the British mm. armies, like West Indies, the Gorkhas, mm. Hindus. If you compare the treatment of these minorities to um, the treatment of the Jews, um, could you see some kind of differences, or is this kind of similar? What were the interests also from the British side mm. to include these minorities? Um, it's a complicated question, and I don't know that much about the treatment of other minorities, but um, uh, one of the difficulties for Jewish people is they were often separated, as I said, so provision of kosher food just didn't happen. The army said it was logistically impossible. I think another story was that of the Gurkhas, as we said. They were seen by the British as a very martial race, people who were really good fighters, as opposed to the Jews, who were seen as not very good fighters at all. And so they really wanted to make sure they could fight at their best. And it was also a question of propagandising the British Empire, encouraging um, these people to come out from India and fight for the British. So they did actually get much better provision for food anyway um, than the British. They were serving together, which I think made it easier. Um, I, I think uh, there was a hospital in Brighton Pavilion for many of the Gurkhas and other troops serving from India. And uh, they did have halal food. You can see there's amazing photographs of the different butchers next to each other to serve all the different groups of men who were in there. None of them Jewish. And uh, I don't know. I think partly... I don't think that my uh, minority groups who were serving from Britain really got as much recognition as people who had different or spe specific needs as people who were serving from outside Britain. I think that was one difference, anyway. Can you explain this? <laughs> yes, it's, I mean, the <laughs> British Army in India had an Indian Army, mm -hmm. and the Indian Army was constituted according to race and religion. Mm -hmm. And they then brought the battalions over mm -hmm. as homogenous battalions, mm -hmm. while you had Gurkha battalions. And there still are six Gurkha battalions in the British mm -hmm. Army. And that's how they raised them, by promising to keep their cultures going and they all have British officers and that's how it worked out. Mm. Yeah, following on from Andreas's question, mm. um, I, I understand that, that your exhibition is primarily about um, Jews in the armed forces. Um, if you take the British Jewish community during the First World War, First World War in, in general, then of course this this German segment uh, becomes far more prominent, mm -hmm. and, and, and there are very, very interesting stories. And, and small in comparatively small in numbers compared to mm -hmm. this massive uh, Russian influx of the previous 30 years, and, and the much equally small old-established Anglo Jewry. Many of these people were naturalized, but nevertheless not trusted. Mm -hmm. um, and um, in, in the early and, and most of them were very rich, so mm -hmm. they were all yes. friends of Edward VII. And from this campaign to uh, have to write letters of loyalty to yes. actually then being sort of turned out of these positions of influence to, to the extent that Sir Edgar Spire was to actually denaturalize Sir Ernest Castle, Sir Conrad Sir. Some of us may remember Jimmy Goldsmith, Sir Jimmy Goldsmith, Sir James mm. Goldsmith, father of 
founder and leader of the referendum party whose mm -hmm. campaign to destroy John Major's government in the early 90s, according to his biographer, he's now dead, was motivated by the fact what the Tory party had done to his father, who was mm. from Germany, Tory and beat in the First World War, mm. uh, and, and had, to leave, uh, had to leave the country. So, I mean, but this is not at the, at the level of the army, but if you, if you look at the position of, of this group of sort of um, relatively small in number, but prominent Jews of mm -hmm. German origin, but British nationality in the First World War, that has lots of very, very interesting stories. No, absolutely. Um... I think, um, I didn't know that about Jimmy Goldsmith, I'm really interested in that. Um, uh, it, it, as I said, we are a military collection, so inevitably um, our collection is skewed towards that. And also we're a very, very small museum, which means that we don't get the plum objects. We borrowed our Isaac Rosenberg things which are on display from the Imperial War Museum because people tend to donate their family's things to the best museum they possibly can. So um, we sometimes get offers and then people write back and say, actually, the Imperial War is going to take it. You don't need it. It's like, well, fine. Um, as long as someone's looking after it, it doesn't really matter to us. Um, although we'd obviously like it, really. Um, absolutely. This is a really, really key story, actually. We don't have much collection about it. It is mentioned in the exhibition. But trying to capture all of this was a real challenge. And I think one of the things I really wanted to do was tell a story of ordinary, so to speak, people. Because I think that's one that's been overlooked more. And also maybe people can relate to in a more kind of immediate way. I don't know. But it's another thing that I should do more small exhibitions on. I hope that following this I can do some more kind of mini pop-up exhibitions or maybe community-based exhibitions working with other organisations because I think this isn't the end of the story of Jews in the First World War. This is just one of the ways that we can tell it. So, yeah, I'll definitely look, look into that in more detail. I have a question regarding mm. question mark. Yes. I mean, the question mark has very much to do with question of integration from both sides, yes. from the British side and from the Jewish side. Now, if we again come back to the other minorities, it looks like us, the other minorities had a better time in the army in terms of mm -hmm. taking care of their specification, if I might call it that way. I'm not sure they but did if they were migrants. I think that's the difference. But anyway, so. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, what can we really learn about um, integration if you look at, um, at the army? Mm. For example, you talk about Caucasus, about Jews, about West Indians. Mm. I think, oh, that's a difficult one. I mean, the British Armed Forces were very, very slow to change. Mm -hmm. The first Jewish chaplain was only in 1892, and as I said, by 1914, they hadn't got any Jewish chaplains on the front line. They didn't have any other faith chaplains. I mean, 1892 was when they also allowed Catholic chaplains, I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> they were very, very hidebound and fixed. Um, uh, and as um, this gentleman over here said, the um, Indian, Indian armies um, were solid groups that came mm -hmm. over. They weren't, they weren't um, 
separated in the way the British Army didn't have to provide for them. I think there is quite a history of the British Army not providing very well for individuals serving within it, um, although maybe they've improved. Actually, a kosher ration pack came out in 2012, which is interesting. <laughs> First one ever. Um, yeah, we have one at the museum, if anyone wants to see it. It's very exciting. Um, it was a good thing to collect. But yeah, 2012, before that, they... Jewish people ate vegetarian food or borrowed the American ones. So um, uh, they haven't done very well for their Jewish um, soldiers since either. Um, I haven't really answered your question. I'm sorry. I haven't really answered your question, I don't think. Okay. Yes. It is difficult to answer, I think. I think, I think it does throw into question what we demand from migrant populations. Mm -hmm. If you're a migrant and you come into a country, you don't really speak the language, you're starting to settle in, but you're living in a slum, you've got no money, no real way of making your way. I mean, many of the um, migrants in East End were living in slum conditions, working in sweatshops, horrifically impoverished. Then expecting them to go out and fight is quite a cheek in a way, I think, really. I think it's really remarkable that anyone thought that they'd all sign up straight away because it just doesn't make sense um, but yeah but the but as I said before the war actually allowed better integration because many Jewish people who'd never really met English speakers suddenly were serving alongside them so in some ways it was very positive for the immigrant community who then used links that they made during the war to grow their businesses after the war and so it was definitely a time of change for the Jewish community as well um, Lots of questions. Well, yeah. Carrying on with that today, mm. thinking about newly arrived migrants mm. at that time, what sort of evidence do, do we have in terms about debate taking place, for example, within radical newspapers, Jewish newspapers, mm. community meetings? It was a time it was a hotbed of constant political Absolutely. arguments. Absolutely referring their ideas, moving back towards Russia. Mm -hmm. You had all sorts of Christian groups trying to campaign in the East End. Do we have, what's the evidence do we have a political debate about whether one should be signing up or not, where one's loyalties lie, people attempts to try and change people's opinions, try and understand why people weren't signing up? Mm -hmm. because, because a lot of people have said, oh, it's because they are frightened to go. Mm -hmm. And what's much more interesting is the political and the religious mm -hmm. and all the arguments that end up with the, I think it's wrong for me to go because I'm Russian or Absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm a socialist or I'm believe in peace as a, as, a, mm. as a Jew. I'm a Zionist and my loyalty lies towards Palestine. What sort of evidence do we have of all that? Because it's a fascinating area. Yes. You've got, you've got the thing of the Balfour Declaration, mm. yeah. what is it, 1917? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
by um, talking to family members. But again, we're a military museum, so we're not interested in the stories of people not serving. So it's been a nightmare for me to try and capture this a little. Um, I think the next step is to go to the edition newspapers and um, look at the internal debates. That's why Rose Kerrigan, and if you are interested in her, she, her oral history, a whole thing, is online on the Imperial War Museum website. But it's also in the exhibition, so you can listen to it there. But the whole thing's online. And she's just really fascinating because she's arguing from the perspective of a highly articulate person who's a, a young quite politically active person during the First World War with a very politically active father. And I just think having that voice is really interesting because normally it's a voice which is hidden, as you say. I said we were doing some work with the Peace Pledge Union on the um, conscientious objectors, which is really interesting work as well. But they've got to the point where they know the names of the people and they sometimes know why they objected and they can't find the extra data. I think there's a, we need to look at the Metropolitan Archive and other places to try and link it up. That's the next thing we need I mean, to do. Maybe the Bishopsgate Institute. And there's also yeah. maybe stuff at the end of the Marx Museum. Yes. Which has got, it's fascinating. Yeah. Papers. I, really, I really want to get into that. I'm not sure yeah. how it will go down with my <laughs> <laughs> museum, but I, I mean, I find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And uh, I need to get some of my Yiddish speakers to translate for me. Um, so, yeah. Well, thank you very much for a fascinating, fascinating lecture. You talked about um, the stereotypes, um, saying that uh, Jewish, yeah, British Jews actually didn't fight at all. And um, these individual case studies that you've presented gave a quite mixed picture, as you pointed mm -hmm. out. So I was, worried, uh, I was wondering um, if it would be possible or whether there had been any research um, yeah, based on personnel records that um, would provide uh, a clearer picture uh, on, a, on, a, on a broader basis. And in particular, I was, um, 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 I was recalling a German historiographical mm -hmm. project um, from a, a few years ago on the mm -hmm. German army in the Second World War, mm -hmm. based on a huge amount of personnel records, um, and which resulted in a very, very clear and detailed picture of the social structures of the German armed forces mm -hmm. in the Second World War. And so I was, I was wondering, yeah, if anything like that has been attempted yet, um, a research that would uh, yeah, be able to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to provide a clearer picture as to um, yeah, how Jewish, Jewish soldiers were deployed in the British Army. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, um, in rear area support services versus yeah. combat, combat uh, employments. Mm -hmm. um, and if, in the end, um, yeah, their deployment was any different uh, to their non-Jewish comrades at all. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, is there any research that, that could yeah, counterbalance these stereotypes with more empirical data based on personnel records. And the second very short question is, um, yeah, you, you raised the question in your talk, um, yeah, what's, what it meant being, Jew, being a Jewish soldier mm -hmm. in, in the First World War. And I was wondering, yeah, if the exhibition yeah, also approaches this question from the non-Jewish perspective. So if it includes any uh, sections about the, the, the responses of non-Jewish soldiers to their Jewish mm -hmm. comrades. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you look at um, uh, letters or diaries mm -hmm. or something of non-Jewish soldiers, would they recognize mm -hmm. these isolated Jewish soldiers mm -hmm. at all as, as, as Jews? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, if you could tell us a little more about these yeah, everyday social interaction mm -hmm. 
Um, that would be very interesting. Okay. So the first question. Um, the British Jewry Book of Honour lists all of the Jews who served. It's notoriously wrong. It's got lots of people missing, lots of people twice. It's in very poor quality alphabetical order, so you can't find people because they're all over the place. But it is listed by battalion, and we know what each battalion did. So theoretically, by looking at the British Jury Book of Honour and working out the proportions of different men in different battalions, you could roughly work out what they did. The personnel records are quite bad. I mean, and also people tended to switch around. So they tended to be start in one regiment and then just be lent around the place. So that makes it quite a challenge to actually unpick that. A lot of people, which kind of starts to answer your second question as well, a lot of people actually didn't sign up as Jewish, and that's another real problem, um, because they didn't want to be... They didn't want to stand out. I mean, I think being in the army, a lot of it is about comradeship and togetherness. Um, the hymn that I tried to play you um, somewhat... Um, quietly, uh, is, a, is a kind of example of this. Um, and also we have a magazine. Uh, battalions would band together to do, do things together to create a singular identity so they could trust each other and go into war. And so people didn't tell anyone they were Jewish. There is a really lovely oral history, which I don't think made it into the exhibition, of someone who was going to sign up as C of E um, and the recruiting officer said, you're Jewish, aren't you? Because he looked Jewish and he was like, oh, yes. So then he was signed up as Jewish. Um, so uh, it, it's not possible to get a complete complete story of how many Jews served and where they served, but you can you could get proportions from the British Jewish Book of Honour, basically. Some people in my organisation have been doing work on finding out numbers of Jews who served and trying to like work out which are correct from the British Jury Book of Honour. But it's a really difficult thing. I mean, Michael Adler, the chaplain who I was talking about, he was identifying Jewish troops who'd signed up as C of E in the trenches so that he could help them, so they could get a Jewish burial, for example. And one of the ways he did it was by reading the Jewish Chronicle and getting the lames. Uh, but then he also read the recruitment list and got out any Cohens or other names. So there's an awful lot of, like like hearsay and people not actually knowing who was Jewish or not and one of the challenges actually for my museum has always been that we can't tell who was Jewish and um, we normally go with people who self-identify as Jewish because that's the easiest way but if they can't tell you they were Jewish it makes it much much more difficult so that is a, a challenge but I'm sure it could be done in more detail second question um, there are accounts and there are bits of letters and things who mentions a Jew in the trenches or often a Yid in the trenches realistically, this is kind of the language of the time um, we haven't looked in depth at that element so much but I have read quite a few And um, but like I said it was, it was really kind of it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly how non-Jewish people thought of Jewish people because they all thought differently anyway, it wasn't like there was a one way of thinking at all. There is a story that we have in the exhibition of a man called Lawrence Marks who uh, was subject to anti-Semitic um, abuse because he wouldn't clean his hut. No, because two Jewish comrades wouldn't clean their hut on a Saturday and they were told off for being lazy Jews and he was then asked to clean the hut and he said he's refusing to do it and then he was called much worse things and he went to court martial but then the commanding officer of his commanding officer, uh, he told him what had been said and he was thrown out of court. And the, um, his commanding officer got a, 
dressing down. So you can see these kind of stories and underlying a lot of the experience of Jewish troops, but I have to say it's quite challenging to find them. Our collection is all Jewish. Um, when you go and research somewhere the Imperial War Museum, you're lucky if you've got a transcript of many of the letters. So how to find from the thousands and thousands of letters, ones which specifically mention an encounter with a Jew is quite hard. So we tend to know about people who had active encounters rather than just happened to meet a Jewish person or swap their bacon or whatever it is. We don't have as many stories of that as I'd like, but yeah. Did that answer everything? Two questions over there. Shall I take in one go? Are you? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. As long as I can remember them. My very big question is have you got lots of unexamined tea coloured bits of paper that you're still going through? And then the second question? Yeah, that's the following. Do you know if the recruits who self identified as Jewish, whether they were segregated into Jewish units? Um, one one, one question over there. Okay. Then uh, yeah. one go. <laughs> thank you. I work for the Heritage Lottery Fund, uh, one of the funders of the exhibition. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I lived on oral history. I'm really interested in the repurposing of mm -hmm. uh, oral histories recorded a very long time mm -hmm. ago for a new audience. I wonder if you could just reflect on um, whether you think, whether, what you learned through that process and, and whether you think that's spoke for um, giving light to more of that wonderful testimony that was mm -hmm. um, recorded. Mm. Very early days of oral history, actually. Yes. And uh, just a call to everybody: if there are other stories that need telling, and there are pop-up exhibitions that need funding, um, there is a, a, a very targeted, focused uh, funding program run by Heritage Lottery Fund at the moment. Um, and I urge you all to investigate if, you, if there are projects that you want to uh, to work with local communities on. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Last. Uh, so. Uh, tea colour pieces of paper. Um, we've basically, uh, since I started, we have now catalogued 98% of the collection, so no, but we have an awful lot of letters relating to the chaplaincy, which we've done in bulk, because there's that <coughs> many of them, and they're on paper, which is thinner than tracing paper, so they're very, very difficult to handle. So the chaplaincy is like a target for sorting it out, but before the move, we need to finish doing everything, so that's kind of where we are. But um, that's not to say they've all been read in detail. And I'm sure that if we were to come to the collection again and do this exhibition, we could tell an entirely different story. Well, probably a similar story, actually, but with an entirely different set of characters. So, um, yeah. Um, your question was about... No, um, when Jewish people... Uh, signed up, they weren't put into specifically Jewish units until the formation of the Jewish Legion. Um, many, at the beginning of the war, when, when before conscription, people did sign up together. You've probably heard of the PALS department, PALS battalions, and Leighton Orient Football Club all signing up together after the end of the match and all of that kind of story. So it was definitely the case that Jewish men would sign up together at times with their friends. Um, but many Jews were isolated. Um, Marcus Siegel actually had a Jewish, half-Jewish Batman halfway through the war, and it seems to have been completely accidental that he got a half-Jewish Batman. And his father, Marcus Siegel's father, was a jeweller, and he writes to him saying he wants a nice watch for him and a slightly less nice watch for his Batman because he's a very good Jewish boy, which um, I quite, it just reflects that slight class differential. But, um, but the fact he had a Batman anyway is remarkable, but... But no, Marcus was lovely, so I shouldn't be mean about him. But, um, yeah, and your question about oral histories. 
I don't... I mean, for me, doing this exhibition, actually listening to the oral histories was, was one of the ways in to try and work out how we could reflect this ridiculously large story. So for me, as a curator, they were absolutely fundamental. And um, I was so excited when I was listening to them and the Imperial War Museum's done an amazing job, to, I should give them a plug, to put them on their website because it does mean you can listen. Um, they are very expensive though, that is one of the real challenges. We have to pay per minute to show in the exhibition, which means the cost really racks up and we actually had to edit them more severely than we would have wanted to because we couldn't afford to play more oral history, which sounds ridiculous, but when you're paying, how much is it? It's something like £18 per minute. Um, Ex-vat, so um, it's uh, sorry. You probably don't need to know that kind of detail, but it's really interesting that we actually have to. So we have to pay procurement costs, and then we have to pay licensing costs, and that's completely normal because it's the only way museums can stay afloat. But it is quite frustrating, and I think in a project like this, we obviously had the funding from various people. Arts Council England were our primary funders, but we also had a private individual funding as well, and. Uh, we could do it, we could use the oral history, but I think in a community project, that's going to be a real challenge because I'd love to do more community-based stuff with this kind of thing, but it's, it's, not, it's not easy. It has to be said with oral histories, the people who do the best oral histories are the ones who are a bit of a character. So I think there's a lot of oral histories which are really quite dull, but if you get someone with a bit of oomph who can tell slightly naughty stories, it's so much more engaging. And we were very lucky with the ones that the Imperial War Museum had, that none of them are boring. They're all really interesting people who, um, I think like Marcus, like the whole thing, that awful story about the sniper, but then he talks about the gramophone again. They kind of put the, um, the slightly um, irreverent in amongst the really serious. And that's kind of, that, that's what captures you, isn't it? So. I'm very, very happy that they took those oral histories when they did, and I wish would like to use them more, but it is a challenge. Okay, then I'd like to say thank you for your very fine presentation. Thank you very much.